Yeah, I love to preach through sermon series. I like to spend weeks dwelling with a book like Luke or Romans or The Passion of Christ or The Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to start a series over the next couple of months on Joseph's story, which I've been looking forward to for, for quite a while, really. Now, of course, Joseph's story is found in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament has a lot of challenges when we come to read it. And it's actually easy to miss the point. And so this morning I'm going to share what Jesus thought of the Old Testament and the key that he gives us so that we can understand fully what the Old Testament is telling us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being able to worship you in song and in prayer. And our hearts are prepared now to hear your word for us, your living word. Stir us by your spirit. Transform us to be like Jesus. Through his name we pray. Amen. Do you know a number of Christians don't bother with the Old Testament? They love the Gospels and they'll have a poke around Paul's epistles. They might even dip into Revelation when they're feeling brave. But they stay clear of the Old Testament. The Psalms is probably an exception, but everything else, just off limits. I mean, why get bogged down in all those laws and lists? Why do you have to be appalled at the bloodshed and the violence? And then page after page of prophet doom and gloom. Maybe you're a bit like that. However, without the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't make sense. Not at all. Without the old, the New Testament is like a ship without a rudder or someone tramping in the bush without a map. The Old Testament is indispensable. This is what the writers of the New Testament said and Jesus himself believed the Old Testament we can't do without. Now there are a few times when Jesus made this very clear like in the Sermon on the Mount and some other occasions as well. And two of those times, as he was explaining the importance of the Old Testament, he gave us the key to help us understand them. And we're going to look at two of those in the Gospels. And the first is on the road to Emmaus that was read before. Remember that there are two disciples. It's the afternoon of that very first Easter. And these two men had left Jerusalem confused and perplexed. They were confused because Jesus had promised so much, but then he died on the cross. And they were perplexed because that same morning, woman had gone to the tomb and claimed to have seen angels declaring that Jesus was alive. And so, the two disciples trudge along the road to Emmaus with Jerusalem at their back. Then Jesus joins them, though unrecognised. And these two disciples pour out all their confused story while Jesus patiently listens and then gently scolds them. How foolish and slow they were not to believe the Old Testament scriptures. And then verse 27, which is that key I was telling you about. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Remember the New Testament hadn't been written then, so when Jesus said prophets in the, in the um, Moses and, and all the scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying from beginning to end, all of the Old Testament is about me. 
Okay, the beginning, that was what the five books that Moses wrote, the end, the prophets, okay, everything in between, every scripture is about me. And again, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is addressing the Jewish leaders. Chapter 5, verse 39, he says to the Jewish leaders, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Who do the Old Testament scriptures talk about? Jesus. That is the key. And of course the Jewish leaders, in fact all of the people around Jesus' time, they were missing the point. They were searching the scriptures for eternal life, not knowing that the Old Testament points to Jesus and he has eternal life. And that's the key that Jesus has left us with. It's like that when we read the Old Testament, we stand beside the empty tomb and we look at Calvary and the cross and all of the Old Testament scriptures are behind. From the empty tomb, the risen Jesus, through the cross, and then we look at Genesis, right through to the last prophet. So when we read an Old Testament story, we say, well, how does this foreshadow Christ? Or how does this law point to the kingdom of God? And how is this prophecy fulfilled in Christ? Every Old Testament passage echoes Christ. Now, now we can read a psalm or we can read a story about Abraham and get great benefit from it, even if we haven't got that Christ consciousness in it. But when we see Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures, they come alive. And this is what we'll be doing as we go through the series on Joseph. We'll be looking at Joseph, we'll be exploring his story, we'll see what the practical implications are for us, but we will also see how Joseph echoes, foreshadows Jesus. So today we'll dive right in at the beginning. For those that have got your Bibles, that's uh, chapter 37 of Genesis, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So here we're introduced to Joseph, a 17-year-old lad. Let's think about what we were doing when we were 17. Some of us have to go back through quite a few decades. 17-year-old. He's the younger, but not the youngest, the sons of Jacob. Now, Jacob's a family man. If you define having 12 boys and a daughter, a family man, then he is. Unfortunately, it's a rather dysfunctional family. And it's hinted about in this very first verse, this verse 2, because we read about Bilhah and Zilpah, two of Joseph's four wives. So let's just get our head wrapped around that, 21st century Western minds that we have. Now, the nearest to our experience would be a step family where the dad had children to three previous partners Plus, he was married and he had children to his current wife and all of the children lived together and the three ex-wives. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of what we're looking at. A whole bunch of full brothers and sisters and half-brothers and sisters and all of the complications in between. 
Unfortunately, it's not a pleasant family to be involved with. Verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe, a coat of many colours. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So here it is, an insight to their family. It's laid bare and it's pretty ugly. So let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, From a practical level, Jacob is referred to by two names in the Bible, Jacob and Israel. Israel was the name that God gave him. Most of the time, the Bible talks about him as Jacob, but now and again it uses Israel. And that kind of makes sense too, because his 12 sons were the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's a whole lot of foundational sort of backstory to these Genesis um, accounts. Anyway, Jacob played favourites. He had a favourite wife out of the four wives, and that wife was Rachel. And so he treated Rachel special. How do you think the other three wives, one of the wives was Rachel's sister? Just to add another complication. Jacob also played favourites with the children. He spoiled Joseph and the younger Benjamin, younger son Benjamin, because they were Rachel's children. So Jacob had a favourite wife, and the two boys were his favourite children, and he didn't bother hiding it at all. Joseph was spoiled. His father even spent a small fortune on this amazing coat. How do you think the other brothers felt when Joseph wore that coat? Pretty hard, isn't it? Imagine today a father buying flash as car for the youngest son and none of the other sons. How do you think those boys would have felt when the youngest son got in his car and drove to school while the other boys had to take the bus? Imagine uh, a younger daughter being given a horse with stabling and every other weekend was off to a gymkhana and no one else. Now put that in a step family. And you can see that things are about to boil over. In fact, things are going to get worse. So we'll just have a quick review. What's happening here? First of all, Joseph is a favoured son. He's one of 12 brothers to four different women. He reported badly on his half-brothers. We see that at the end of verse 2. He brought their father a bad report about him. He told tales on his brothers. He wore an ultra-special coat. And he was hated by his brother. Now things are about to get worse. Let's see how they do get worse. Uh, Verse 5. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field and suddenly my sheath rose and stood upright while your sheaths gathered around mine and bowed down. What's happening here? Well, let's get the big picture first. God is giving Joseph a dream, announcing what will happen in the future. Why? Because God's plan is bigger than this family. He's got some wonderful plans ahead. And so when these amazing plans come to fruition, he doesn't want people to say, that was Joseph. Or, isn't Jacob's family wonderful? 
Or isn't the Pharaoh really good and wise? No, God is going to do a wonderful miracle and it's going to, he wants the glory. He doesn't want these other people to get the glory, so he gives Joseph a dream. So later on, when we see all this fulfilled, we have no choice but to say, God's amazing God. And so that's the big picture that's happening with this dream. But what about Joseph? Well, it's the first of six dreams in this story. Six dreams. And they all come in pairs. There's two dreams now. There's two dreams while Joseph is in prison. And there are two dreams where? Where are the final two dreams in the story? Yeah, Pharaoh in the palace. And so these six dreams, these three pairs are really crucial because it's God stamping his fingerprint on the story saying, I'm in control. No matter how dysfunctional the family, no matter how much trouble you're in prison, no matter how high you are in Pharaoh's court, I, the Lord God, am in control. And that's why he's giving these dreams. And of course, what's the meaning of the first dream? Well, uh, the 12 sheaths of corn bowing down are obviously the brothers. Now, of course, that speaks to what's going to happen in another 20 years when there's this famine. And the brothers come to Joseph not knowing who he is. Well, it's a bit of a spoiler, isn't it, really? But anyway, and he comes. But that goes over the boys' heads. All they see is in this dream, they're bowing down to Joseph, and they will have none of it. There is no way. And so the boys say, verse 8, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. And then God gives him another dream. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bearing down to me. And we see the theme, don't we? It's more of the same. Instead of 12 sheaves of corn, there's 12 stars that are bowing down before, before Joseph. He even tells his father, and his father is not impressed. And so he tells his favoured son off. It must be the mildest telling off that you can imagine. He says in verse 10, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers weren't so generous. Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. So what do we have here? What picture of family bliss is painted for us? It's all a bit grim, isn't it? Well, we have a favoured son whose father can see no wrong in him while his brothers are deadly jealous. His brothers hate him with a vengeance. There's a spite and a malice that runs deep. And next week, we're going to see this all coming to a head. But now, how are we to make sense of this story? What's some take-homes for us, and how does this point to Christ? Well, firstly, our first take-home is we are reminded here for God's plan for marriage and it doesn't mean multiple wives. (laughs) Okay, Now this plan for God-intended marriage is recorded in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So God's plan for marriage is one male, one female, married together before God, becoming one flesh. Now it's interesting to note that in the Old Testament, every family that has multiple wives that we get a glimpse into is dysfunctional. 
There is not one family in the Old Testament that has more than one wife where you can hold up as an example and say, what a wonderful family. It's because they were out of God's will. Now, there are a number of cultural reasons that we could talk about why that was important and and all these sort of things. But at the end of the day, having multiple wives falls outside the will of God. And so we uh, we can look at people like Abraham had Sarah and Hagar, and there were troubles. We can look at King David, Abigail, Bathsheba, and a number of other wives, more trouble. And don't get me started on Solomon. Thousand wives and concubines, and he got into mega trouble. Let's be clear, God's plan for marriage, one man, one woman, one flesh before God. And of course we don't have in our culture an issue with multiple wives. We have issues in other areas, don't we? De facto relationships and same-sex marriage. So let's be clear. De facto and same-sex relationships fall outside the word of God. This is the stand of the Presbyterian Church of Aotea, New Zealand. I appreciate being a Presbyterian But our denomination doesn't get everything right all the time. But I believe they've got this right. So this is reflected in our denomination's stand on leadership. So to be a minister or an elder or train for the ministry, you can either in a heterosexual marriage or you're single. And that lines up with the word of God. Now, that's a very difficult stand to take, isn't it? because there is so much pressure on us to broaden the definition of marriage to, well, all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, there'll be some people here who pay the cost for that stand, and there'll be people here that you agonise because you have grandchildren or children who, you know, in a de facto relationship or same-sex marriage. So I'm not saying that it's easy. And the pastoral response for us is a real challenge. But let's stand firm and say, this is God's will for marriage and this is what is the best for everyone. So that's the first take home for today. God's will for marriage is not to have a bunch of wives, guys. So hold your horses. But yeah, seriously, God's word is clear. And this is where we stand and though it does cause us some discomfort and, well, it can cause us pain to hold that stand, that's what God's words say and that's where we stand. So that's the first take home. Second take home has to do with playing favourites in families. Is it a good idea to play favourites in families? No. Why is it not a good idea? Read these 11 verses and you will see what happens. Relationship breakdown relationship breakdown and it can happen in the workplace as well you know you may have worked unfortunately with a a boss and he played favorites amongst the staff and you have seen the destruction and the mistrust and and just it just gets awful and so this is the second take home for us today in our family context and if we're um, you know in positions of authority don't play favorites now with Jacob he had the he had the problem and that that's all he knew because his mum and dad played favorites you know the story, his father Isaac loved and favouritised and spoiled Esau. Where Rebecca 
spoiled Jacob. And what happened to those two boys? Dysfunctional. Esau wanted to literally kill him, and so Jacob had to run away and spend decades apart. And it wasn't really until their father died and they were at their graveside that you really have a sense that they were starting to reconcile. And so the warning is really clear. Don't play favourites amongst children or grandchildren or in the employment context. Now there's hope though. Now I want to make sure that we have hope today because this family is going to implode in a really dramatic way. It's all, going to, it's, all the wheels are going to fall off every wagon in this family as we're going to find out over the next few weeks. But God has a plan. And one of the reasons I love this story is because the reconciliation towards the end of this story is amazing. And even this mega dysfunctional family, God did not give up on. Even in the midst of the chaos and the pain. And that may be the word for some people here today. Maybe your family situation is, is chaotic. Or maybe it's your adult children going through a really hard time. God does not give up. Hang in there. Keep praying. And there is the hope of reconciliation as we see in this family. So these are the two take-homes today. The t- first take-home on is God's standard for marriage is very clear. Husband, wife, man, woman. Secondly, don't play favourites. If you're an authority as a parent or an employment situation or in a church, don't play favourites. But how does this story now point to Jesus? Where is Christ in this story? Well, Jesus is also the loved and the favoured son. Unlike Joseph, this is fear. It's deserved and it's conferred on Jesus by his heavenly father. And we see that in a number of places, but most clearly at his baptism. Isn't this just a wonderful, it's the whole situation of Jesus being baptised and his heavenly fathers conferring, publicly making known that this is his dearly loved and favoured son. Matthew 3 verse 17, a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Yes, Jesus was the loved and favoured son. But Jesus was also hated. He was hated with a vengeance. Why? Because he spoke God's truth, just as Joseph had. God gave Joseph a dream, two dreams. And Joseph spoke out those words of truth and his brothers hated him. And Jesus was the same. God gave his son the words to speak and Jesus spoke them. We have them recorded in the Gospels. And his brothers, that's the Jewish nation, the leaders in particular, they hated him. And it all comes to head on the night he was betrayed when he stood trial before the Sanhedrin. And you'll see how similar this is to Joseph. Remember, Joseph had a dream. And in that dream, he saw his brothers bowing down before him. And this is what Jesus is saying. Very similar. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. And the Jewish people knew that that was a quote from Daniel. And when the Son of Man came down in that vision, all heaven and earth bowed down before him. And Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of Man and you are going to bow down before me. And the Jewish leaders who had him on trial reacted exactly the same way as Joseph's brothers. 
They hated him with a vengeance. There is no way they were going to bow down to this rural, Galilean, uh, roughly spoken, pretend of a rabbi. And so, just like Joseph's brothers, the Jewish leaders replied with anger, with hatred. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned Jesus as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. And they blindfolded him and struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and they beat him. And in many ways, Jesus is like Joseph. But Jesus is a true and a better Joseph. Jesus is the dearly loved and favoured son who bore the cost of speaking God's word. And it was a word that offended. God's word on Jesus' lips offended people, just like it did when Joseph offended his brothers. But Jesus was faithful even to death. But we have a choice. We are not like Joseph's brothers. When we hear these words, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when we get a glimpse of what that means, if you're a Christian, it thrills your heart. You catch this glimpse of our Lord coming again in his glory. And we can't help ourselves. We want to bow our knee. We want to raise our voice and worship. We want to honour Christ. We choose not to be like Joseph's brothers. We choose to be servants of the living God who will worship Christ. Christ who gave up his life so that we can be reconciled and drawn into the family of God. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come and lead us in our final song, a song that will allow us to give expression of all that Christ did for us.